Good morning, everyone. We are starting a short series today on church words. Those are words and phrases that we use in the context of a church as Christians that may not resonate with that first-time guest or visitor or that new believer. It may be challenging to them. They may not know exactly what we mean when we say it. And I think this next video is going to clear all that up. Let's watch that. Actually, it won't clear it up, but that's just kind of setting the tone. That was the best audio quality we were able to get, but I imagine now everything is crystal clear, right? We can go home? We're done? No. Every kind of industry, every type of family even, has this language that they use back and forth that um, communicates really important things, but if you're an outsider, it's really hard to figure out what that language is. It's, it's hard to figure out those, those terms and those phrases and those, those shortened words that mean a lot. And so it is my hope that through this series, we tackle some really big Christian words so that we would have a better understanding of them and be able to enjoy the uniqueness that God gives us in this thing called a new life with him. And the first word, and perhaps the most common and most misunderstood word that Christians use is the word Trinity. That is a big word. Because it is a word that does not occur in Scripture. Nowhere is it found in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But the concept and the truth of the Trinity, a triune God, one God in three persons is throughout the entirety of Scripture. And we just simply use the word Trinity to kind of quickly give a summary of what lots of Scriptures talk about. And there is probably not a more misunderstood or misapplied word than the word Trinity. In fact, you can point to any religion that is not Christianity, and they will fail the litmus test on the Trinity. 
And you can identify a cult immediately based on what is your view of God? Describe for me the Trinity. And if they get that wrong, I guarantee you, they will get the entire message of the gospel wrong. They will get the entire message of heaven and hell wrong. They will get the entire message of grace wrong. They will get the entire message of law wrong if they do not have a biblical understanding of who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. I think one of the greatest starting points when we talk about the Trinity is to start with a good general definition, first of all, is who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That is the fourth question from the Westminster Catechism, the Shorter Catechism. And it has been said it is the best summary of who is God that has ever been written over the last 400 years. Some have said it's the best sentence ever penned by man's hand. It is an incredible devotional exercise to take that question and answer and look up every one of those words. Where does it talk about God being spirit? Where does it talk about God being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? Where does it talk about God being full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth? Where in Scripture are those things explored? And that is a great discipline and exercise for your faith and for your well-being and relationship with God to look those verses up and say, wow, that verse summarizes what chapters in Scripture talk about. It is a great starting point to understand who God is. And immediately, you are probably overwhelmed. This is a big topic. This cannot be a bigger topic anything else in Scripture. The nature and character of who God is sets the stage for your relationship with Him. It sets the stage for forgiveness and mercy and kindness. It sets the stage with how do we live our lives. It sets the stage for what is your hope in this life and the next. If we do not get down solid who is God, then we are starting on a very rocky, sandy foundation for everything else you believe. It is foundational. It is essential. It is elementary. It is the basic of all basics in the Christian life, understanding and defining who is God. Because from the very first verse of Scripture in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God. And then he created. It starts with the assumption and understanding that this character that is on full display in the very first verse has something to do and reveal to us. Someone who is magnificent in power and in might. And for us to learn about him, for us to dive into Scripture and wrestle with things that logically might, might seem impossible is a good thing. Because we're diving in to the depth of a relationship that will go on for eternity. Who is God? God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Scripture also tells us that there 
answers the question, how many gods are there then? And there is but one only, the living and true God. And we use that phrase, God, and we assign it to lots of different things. In fact, Scripture does too. It talks about the God of the Philistines, the God of the Egyptians, the God of the Romans, and just uses that word God, meaning supreme being, very generally. But when it's talking about the creator in the beginning, God created, it's very particular and very reasoned in how it uses that word. And we see two passages, one in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that sets the stage that every Jew memorizes by the name the Shema or the great Shema. Now, Shema just simply means it's a Hebrew word for the word name. So it's the great name of God, and it states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so Judaism promotes its foundation as monotheistic. There is one theist, one God in their religion. And Christianity would say exactly the same thing. We're not polytheists. We don't worship many gods. We also worship one God in three persons. And that's where it differs from Judaism at its core. When Christ claimed that he was God, the Jewish leaders of the day could not comprehend it. They could not accept it. They rejected it and called it blasphemy unless they had read Scripture and had seen that God himself multiple times in the Old Testament revealed himself as a plurality of three. Also in Jeremiah 10, verse 10, the very first part of it, it says, but the Lord is the one true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. That sets him apart from every other deity that man has created. It's not living that tree and that stone that you've turned to worship to is not living. The moon and the stars that you worship are not living. Buddha is not living. Muhammad is not living. They are dead. But our God, our God demonstrated his power over death and life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second person of the triunity. He is living and active. And that means something to us. It can mean terror. You're not going to escape him but it can also mean incredible comfort. Knowing that he is interested in you and able to reach you with a relationship. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Another question comes up, having already defined God as one true living God, there's one God. We might ask the question, I've talked about this just a little bit, about three persons. Well, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Well, there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, sometimes referred to as the Holy Spirit. That's interchangeable throughout all of Scripture. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And immediately you might go, Tim, that's very illogical. Three persons in one God, how is that possible? Logic tells me that cannot happen. This is not a logic question. This is not a logic puzzle. This is not a question answered by logic or reason. It is a question answered by faith and trust. Do I believe what God says about himself? Do I believe that this is true and accurate in all that it describes? And I have to come to the conclusion 
It's either all accurate or it's a deception. And when you come to the conclusion it's accurate, as hard as it might be logically to figure this out three in one, I rest on faith and trust that God might just know more than me. And I know that's a humbling spot, and we don't want to be in that humbling spot. We want to own the answer, know the answer, and have all the answers figured out. We want to understand it completely. Well, if you're one of those people, I've got bad news for you. I don't think you will ever understand anything completely. You might have knowledge about something, superior knowledge to me about something or others, but you're never going to understand everything about one simple thing. You won't. There was always more to learn and more to engage in. And so what happens in our minds, we then try to figure out what is God like? What is the Trinity like? And so we'll come up with a question and an answer to that and say, well, you know what? Maybe God is like an egg. There's a shell, there's the white, and there's the yolk. One egg, three parts. And then all of a sudden we come to our senses and go, God can't be like an egg. <laughs> he is much, <laughs> much different than an egg. But then we'll go, oh, I, I know, I know, I know. He's like water. Because water can be a solid, it can be a liquid, and it can be a gas. And if you're really fancy and into chemistry and physics, you'll say, Tim, what about the triple point of water, where water can exist in all three states at exactly the same time with the right heat and pressure? And I'll still say, water is not like God at all. And then you'll come up with one of the last ones. Well, God is like a person who is, at the same time, a mother, a wife, and a daughter. That's what God is like. And I will come back and say, that is, God is nothing like that. God is one God in three persons, not different modes, not different roles, not different functions, not different parts of a whole. Because you can't just have the yoke and not have the rest of it to be an egg. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God. Three persons in one God. It is not like any analogy you can come up with, and I have heard them all. I've just picked the three that are most commonly used probably in Sunday schools. But he is not like those at all. He is the one true living God who is spirit, who reveals himself in a way that you know. You know exactly how he reveals himself. And you have all the tools, all the knowledge, all the skills already at your disposal to understand the Trinity. And we're going to share that in just a minute. But this idea that there are three persons in one God is seen most clearly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. It says, uh, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now the Word is capitalized, in your versions of the Scripture, I imagine every version of Scripture has the Word capitalized because the Word refers to Jesus Christ. Because in John chapter 1, it starts out by saying, the Word was at the beginning. 
And so Jesus, one of his titles, one of the way in which Jesus Christ is described is the Word. Simply the Word, which means in flesh he came and displayed for us God's revelation. What God was and is and what he wants of us and what he does for us. And so in 1 John 5, 7, we clearly see God described as three persons, but yet one God. One God, three persons. I don't think that that is an insurmountable, logical conundrum that we give up. You have everything necessary to understand the Trinity right here and right now. Three persons, one God. Those three persons revealed themselves in three very special, unique ways in which we can identify them as individuals, still equal in power and glory. No diminishing one God over another. No thinking one God is more important than the other because there's only one God. All three persons are equal in that power and glory. God the Father, who oftentimes in Scripture is just called God or Lord, especially in the Old Testament. We refer to him as Father. We kind of think of him as the head of all three, and he's not the head of all three. They're equal in power and glory. They're equal in importance and supremacy. They're equal in worship and majesty. But he describes himself as the Father. And he describes himself as seeing creations fall and being grieved over it, over sin. And he has this undescribed council meeting, you might say, between all three persons of the Godhead. And he says the only thing that's going to remedy this sin is if we deal with it head on. And in order to deal with it head on, these people must pay the penalty for their sin, which is eternal separation from God. Judgment. The fires of hell. It says there has to be a better way to overcome this sin than to have everyone pay for it themselves. And the Son, in that eternal council, before the worlds had even been created, they put this plan in action. And the Son, who we call Jesus, the Messiah, or Christ, the Anointed One, or the Word, said, Father, I'll do it. Send me. I will go. And I will live the law perfectly for them so that they don't have to live the law perfectly. And I will give them all of my righteousness. And I will take all of their sin. And immediately you are overwhelmed with, but that's unfair. He did nothing wrong. Why would he die for people who are rebelling against him, who hate him? And all three of those persons answer that question, that's why it's called grace. Undeserved, unearned, unworthy love. <coughs> so the son takes on the plan and says, I'm going to accomplish this. I will come as a human, live a human life, and die a human death, but it will not just simply be a human death, it'll be a divine execution laying down of my life upon the cross. 
so that those who love me and obey and believe will be saved. Every one of them. And the Spirit in turn in that eternal counsel, in His amazing wisdom, power, and might, says my job will be to apply it. I will go into that person's heart and change it. I will bring what's called regeneration, new life, being saved. And I will change their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And I will reveal in man's natures, in the eyes, in the hearing, I will reveal to them in all of nature how grand you are, Father. And I will make sure that people hear the witness of the Son And after that conversion takes place, after someone is born again, regenerated, saved, believed, I will be with them until they're back with us in heaven. And the entire time, I will protect them. And no one will be able to snatch them out of your hand, Father. And all three were in agreement. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And all three said, this is for the glory of God. How many times have you made a plan in life that didn't come true? How many times did you say, this year I'm going to get organized. This year I'm going to go exercise. This year I'm going to eat better. This, whatever it might be. Has anyone ever made a plan like that? Ever had this thought in their mind? I'm going to go ahead and do something. And you're going to be as brave as writing it down and putting it on your refrigerator. Right? Yeah. Um, all of those things come true? All those plans happen? How many plans have you had that have just kind of fallen by the wayside? Some of them happen, yes. But imagine something as complicated as creating, redeeming, saving, and guaranteeing that person who was saved will be with God in eternity. All the variables God solves perfectly in his majesty, in his might, in his sovereignty. Imagine accomplishing that plan, not for one person, but for billions of them. And he accomplished it. You see, God is not like us. He is not like an egg. He is not like water. He is not like a person that has three different roles in life. He is one God in three persons, and he accomplished the work of the gospel in unity. That, in essence, is the Trinity. I didn't use complicated words to explain it. Maybe the word regeneration or born again could be confusing, but we'll talk about that later in this series. But the general premise of God the Father had a plan, God the Son executed the plan, and God the Holy Spirit applies it, that is the Trinity. There's no logic involved. There's faith and belief that he accomplished it. Now in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at two portions here. We're first going to look at uh, the first few verses, then we're going to skip down to verse 9 through 11. So I know on your screen you have 9 through 11, but I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to see this very thing unfold at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, that the Father plans things, the Son executes the plan, and the Holy Spirit applies it. And look at how Paul just interchanges all three people constantly throughout these verses. Starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. 
Now, I have to be very careful here <coughs> because Romans chapter 8 is in and of itself an amazing chapter. Every chapter is. I know that. But Romans 8 has so many little rabbit trails that I could spend days on preaching. So I have to be very concrete. So I need you to hold me accountable. If I've got bogged down somewhere, Tim, time, remember, got to finish this. I will. But there's just so much here. In fact, just the the first phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation. Oh, all of Romans 6 and 7 means there is no condemnation. But there's therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those that have a relationship with the second person of the Trinity has no condemnation. Why? For the law of the spirit of life, talking about the Holy Spirit, the law that he has relayed to us, the truth that he has relayed to us, has set you free in Christ Jesus. He did something. The Holy Spirit set you free. He applied the work of Jesus Christ. From the law of sin and death, that is the bondage of law. We were born under law. We serve under law. We still try to obey the law perfectly. We think, if I do more good than bad, God will love me and I'll be fine. That is not how God works. That's how the world works, and that's how false religions work. Yes, be a good person, and you'll get rewarded at the end. That whole idea of karma. And we saw from the entire book of Judges, there is no such thing as good luck, bad luck, or karma. No good in trying to live your life according to the law, because you will fail. And one failure equals failure. So we're already told at the very beginning, the Holy Spirit applies some kind of work that has happened in Christ to us. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Well, what happened? By sending his Son in the likeness of human flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ accomplished a mighty work of dying on our behalf by taking sin upon himself in real human flesh. He would have been, if you would have done an x-ray or an MRI of Jesus, he would have looked exactly like you. Every bit of his humanity is the same as every bit of your humanity, except for one thing, sin. He had no sin. He became sin for us on our behalf. And that's exactly what this is talking about. He took the law. He took the sin. He put it upon his own flesh. He did execute the plan. The Father's plan, the Son's execution, and the Spirit's application. So that, in verse 4, he did all this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us so that we might be righteous and holy, so that it would look as if we had never sinned. Wow. You know that's how God views you? God does not view you as a failure. So many of us judge others based on looks, on what they've accomplished in life. And if you haven't accomplished their standard, they consider you a failure. God does not look at you as a failure. God doesn't ignore our faults, our sins, but what he does is he erases it. 
and puts in place an exact picture of Jesus Christ's perfect life and says, that's how I view you. I view you through Christ as if you had never sinned. God never views you as a failure, ever. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set the minds on the things of the Spirit. That is, that's the application of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're heavenly focused. We're not fleshly focused, pleasure focused. We're heavenly focused. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. Then listen to these verses. You, however, Paul's talking to the believer now. Not the person who lives in the flesh for their own pleasure, but for the one who's been transformed and changed by the working of the Holy Spirit. And you are now submissive to the Father and acknowledging that the Son has died on your behalf and rose again. And you are acknowledging it's not your righteousness, but His that matters. And the focus is no longer on you, but you put the focus on God, which means you also put the focus on loving others ahead of yourself by being humble and servant-minded and willing to give up your parking spot or seat that you've always sat in when someone else sits there first. You go, Lord, if this is how you want me to serve someone today, awesome. That was easy. It says, so you, however, are not of the flesh but of the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Look at how the Spirit, God, and Christ are just interchanged constantly in these verses. If God is in you, if the Spirit is in you, if Christ is in you, it is if Paul believes there is one God in three persons active in your life. He's defining for us how the Trinity works in us. How the Trinity reveals himself to us. He continues and says, and I got no idea where I stopped, but I'm going to start in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now that is a lot. Those verses could take days to read through and pray and apply. But I hope that you saw just real quickly without all these fancy theological words and logical arguments and reasoning of the philosophers, you see exactly how the Trinity reveals themselves and how God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact with us daily. The Trinity is not just simply a word that's used to describe some far-off notion, complicated, theoretical view of who God is. The Trinity is essential 
for your spiritual life today. Without one of the persons, the gospel message would be lacking and missing. And do you know what that means? If the Trinity was not true, you would not be saved. How important is the Trinity? My life, literally, my life depends on it. And that is why the church for 2,000 years has fought tooth and nail, council after council, creed after creed, doctrine after doctrine, theology after theology has had to set in place again the foundations that God is one God in three persons time and time again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, it says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a beautiful benediction from Paul to the believer, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of his work, and the love of God, all of his planning and all the things that he set in motion, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, all the unity and bonding and encouragement that the Holy Spirit gives us. What is Paul's desire for the Trinity? That they be with you all. That he be with us. And he has guaranteed from the very beginning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think two things in closing for take home. One is, if God were small enough to be understood, if he was easy enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to worship. If he was so easy to understand, so easy to accept, so easy to figure out, I'd say that's not a God worthy to be worshipped. You see, because worship defines for us awe and wonder. The Trinity increases our awe of God, our worship of God, the greatness of God, the wonder of God. You do not have to walk away from here being confused. What is the Trinity? I can't understand it. Or, it's never mentioned in Scripture, therefore it can't be true. The Trinity defines for us the depth of our relationship with God and the promise that after we breathe our last breath, they will be there to greet us into all of the love and wonder that heaven awaits. As I pray, I'm going to ask the team to come up and sing our last song. And as we sing our last song, I want us to be mindful that All three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three of them have worked eternity to make this opportunity available to increase our relationship with them. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, we want our worship our wonder, our awe, our reverence of you to abound even more. Father, we want our relationship with you to be increased and strengthened. Father, keep error far from us and let us focus on what is true and recorded for us in your word. Thank you, Father, for planning redemption. Thank you, Son, for accomplishing it. 
Thank you, Spirit, for applying it and for encouraging us to live this day for the rest of our life. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.